We're continuing a sermon series on prayer. And so we've been actually six weeks in at this point into that. Now it's going to recap a little bit sort of what we've heard. So Wayne started us off on effective prayer about relationship with God. And that something about approaching him with humility is an essential aspect of what prayer is. Warren looked at the uh, idea of, again, about relationship and the fact that prayer is not about getting things and the importance of faith in prayer. My father looked at the idea of no specific formula to prayer, that it's not about the, specifically about how the words are said that makes a difference and that we need to listen to the Spirit for guidance and trusting and not on our own strength. Daryl looked at the idea of men should always pray and not lose heart, no matter the situation, but continue to be persevering through those things. Steve was on prayer is, not a, is a dialogue. Prayer is a dialogue. We need to wait and listen. It's not just a mailbox, as he, as he so eloquently put it. Uh, last week, we got dueling sermons from Michael and Pastor Nope. I'm not going to summarize Pastor Nope. I'll just summarize Michael. Um, prayer is more than the sum of our words. And he also invites, God invites us to transform not just our actions, but all of our whole being. So before we continue into my sermon, uh, let's just uh, pause for a moment and pray. So Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity to, to learn more about what it means to pray, to spend this time in your presence. Thank you, Lord, that we get to corporately together gather uh, thank you for bringing us in your presence and for the just awesome um, opportunity to be in your presence, Lord. In your name, amen. So I started with two ideas for my sermon. One is, how has the church in the past learned to pray? And as I started to look at that, what I came to the conclusion is, is that in, even before Jesus, the Psalms were used as the exiled Jewish nation's prayer book. And yet, after Jesus, it continued to be the early church's prayer book. If it's good enough for them, it's a good place to start. So, we're going to be looking at praying the Psalms. And the second thing that started me on this sort of this journey for this specific sermon is the contradiction in our experience. And what I mean by that is we know that God is good, we know that He's all powerful and that he has the best plans for us. And yet, as we look around the world, we see so much suffering, pain, tragedy. It's hard sometimes to not just, how to deal with that. So that's the thing. Prayer in the Psalms, and this contradiction that we experience on a daily basis. How do we deal with that? So, A place to start with this is to look at the categories of the Psalms. People have sort of sat down and said, okay, what are these things, these buckets you could sort of fit the Psalms into? Things like praise, thanksgiving, wisdom. There's this category sort of called like royal enthronement ones. These can be more almost like looking forward to Jesus and also ones sort of talking about the current king. There is lament. And there are songs of Zion. And there are more, but these are just the top couple categories. You can get up to, I don't know, 20 or 30 categories, depending on who you look at. So if I were to ask you, what is the most 
common of these in the Psalms? What would you say? Lament. That is right. It depends on, the, on how you categorize things, but anywhere from one-third to two-thirds of the Psalms are lament. It far, far out exceeds every other category. And it all, the reason you can get anywhere from one-third to two-thirds is how much of a psalm needs to have lament before it's officially a lament? One verse? Two verses? Eh. So it depends on that, how many you get. So because of that, we're going to specifically look today not at the overall broad category of psalms. We're going to look at the one that is the most common, the most familiar. And so that is where we're going to start. And when I say lament, what I mean is lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart, wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Which brings us back to where I started, right? Which is, we're talking about the Psalms and we're dealing with this contradiction that we experience in the world. Now, as I started to look at this, the first thought that comes to my mind is, I thought I wasn't supposed to be complaining. Is lament, lament complaining? Short answer, no. But let's go a little bit longer. The best way to do this, I think, is to look at the structure of lament, the common themes or threads that are in the laments. Every single lament doesn't contain every one of these, but these are some of the top ones. So the first one, there is a call on God that assumes a relationship with him. For instance, Psalm 1, 5, uh, Psalm 5, 1 and 2. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Psalm 10:1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That word Lord there is Yahweh. It's not just any God, it's a very specific God. We're not talking just generically, oh, you being out there, help me. No, this is, this is a relationship issue that we have here. Psalm 22, um, by the way, I'm going to be quoting Psalm 22 and Psalm 44 a lot here. Pay attention specifically to those two because they will be more important later on in the quiz. You didn't think there was a quiz? Oh, there's a quiz. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Psalm 88, 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. So the first aspect of lament is that there is a relationship to even be had. That's important. Number two, remembering God's previous actions and character and anchoring ourselves in that is a part of lament. Psalm 22, verses 3 and 5, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Psalm 44, 1 through 3, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you have planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So there's this anchoring, this confidence that whatever I'm experiencing, I know who God is. 
and how he's acted before. He is my God. He's not just anybody. And those two are key to thinking just about, is what we're talking about complaint? Consider the Israelites. They go into the wilderness and they're complaining and they're saying, God brought us out here because he wants to starve us and kill us out here. He is in no, they are in no way anchoring themselves in how God has faithfully acted in the past. It's complaint. And they don't believe that they have a relationship with him, so they don't approach God in any way. They're approaching Moses and complaining about God to him. That's different. So what we're talking about is not complaint. Lament and complaint are separate things. We anchor ourselves in the relationship and how God has acted in the past. Some other common features of lament uh, is confession of sin or, in, in some cases, innocence for the experiences that I have in my life at the moment. Psalm 25, 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalm 51, 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may just be justified in your words and blameless in your just judgment. Psalm 51 is, is David actually confessing about what he did with David and Bathsheba. Psalm 44, 17 and 18. All this has come upon us, that we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our hearts heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. So in Psalm 44, they're saying, what we're experiencing, we're not guilty for. There have been times where we've been guilty. Right now, we're faithful, and we're still experiencing these things. Psalm 143, verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. And I think that one's a really, really like powerful one for us, which is at the end of the day, we're never actually innocent. <laughs> but we have confidence that because of who God is, we don't get what we deserve. Number four, a description of the... Oh, so the first three so far we've had, um, it's a relationship with God remembering God's previous character, and there's a confession of sin or innocence that often takes place. Number four, a description of the complaint. Psalm 44, verses 9 through 13. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. So here we are again saying, here's, here's what's going on. Here's what we're experiencing. This is why we're even coming to you in the first place. This is the issue. And you'll notice up to this point, there actually hasn't been any request to what to do. We've had an anchoring in God's, in, in the fact that we have a relationship. Confidence in who God is. Confession if needed, and a um, description of what's going on, but we've not asked for anything up to this point. And this is really interesting. Often in the Psalms, in the laments, the actual request is a very small portion of actually what happens. The majority of what's going on are all the other things. Psalm 22, 19 to 21. 
But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my soul, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So there's, the, there's a request there. Psalm 44, 23 to 26. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your voice? Or hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The next one makes a lot of us uncomfortable. Call for judgment or even a curse. The imprecation against the enemies. And this one can feel really uncomfortable a lot to us. <laughs> Some of us maybe not so much. Psalm 3:7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. And if we just stop there on Psalm 3, we can actually start to get a sense of what this call is. One, this beginning of Psalm 3 talks about the fact that there are all these people who are talking badly about David. And so he's calling for their teeth to be busted out so they can't talk anymore. <laughs> Stop the very thing that is happening. Bring response, like a, an equal response to the offense that has been brought. And that is a consistent theme through Scripture, that God brings justice he brings an equal payment to those things that are those things that you've done. And yet we are also covered under grace, right? But there is, this, there is a consistent theme about judgment that is you get this equal payment for the offense. Psalm 7, 14 to 16. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. That's pretty vivid. He makes a pit digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief turns upon his head, and on his skull his violence descends. Which is the hope, right? Which is that these times where people are trying to cause things on you, that they be turned and flipped on them. That is, that is the cry of the laments. Justice. Psalm 35, 7 to 8. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon me when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid, and hid to ensnare me, let him fall into it, to his destruction. Psalm 140, 9 to 11. As for the head of those who surround me, let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits. No more to rise. Let the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. So we're constantly calling for justice. But what I, I would point out about this is that even as we feel or can feel uncomfortable about this, at the end of the day, this is a nonviolent call because it's not us taking up the judgment. We're entrusting ourselves to God to bring the judgment if he so sees fit. It is him we are trusting in and not in our own ability to execute the judgment or the violence necessary. That's not for us. It's something that we trust to God. And number seven, certainty of being heard. As we call to God, we have the certainty that he will hear us. Psalm 13, five, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 44, eight. 
In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. <clears throat> Psalm 142.7. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. So even as we're going through these things, we can anchor ourselves. This is what lament looks like. There is these seven sort of things that are very, very common, and there are more that could be there, but these are seven of them. So we start with the fact that there is a relationship to even be had in the first place. We trust in that. We remember God's previous actions. Confession of sin or innocence. Description of the complaint. What is it that I am asking for? What's going on? Petition. The actual thing that we're saying, we're, you know, we're, we're saying here, you're God here, save, help, vindicate, heal, rescue us. Call for judgment and certainty of being heard. This is where we anchor ourselves at this point. As I was working on this, I was reading a, a lot of different things, as I always do, and uh, I started to read uh, uh, um, an author, Rebecca Eklund, and I'm going to quote her a lot. You know you read people and sometimes and you're just like, man, if only I could talk half that good. This is Rebecca She's, she's, the way she says things are just amazing. So I'm going to quote a lot of her stuff. If you guys hear any of the quotes and can't get them written down in a reasonable amount of time, I have the notes. I'm happy to share them with you. The Psalms reveal that Israel directed her lament to a particular God within the context of the covenant relationship. God made promises to Israel to bless and prosper and dwell with the people. God declared the essential divine characteristics to be long-suffering love. Lament demands that God keep these promises, be true to his character. When the people of Israel suffer drought or defeat at the hands of enemies or sickness or sorrow, they raise their voice to God because God is the one who hears cries and has the power to help it with and rescue. Within this framework, the apparent hiddenness or silence of God is one of the central themes of the laments of Psalms and connects to human experience of God's absence more broadly. Because this isn't something that Israel just experiences. It's something we experience. And we anchor ourselves in the same way Israel did in this response. Now, if you're like me and ask lots of questions, then you're thinking to yourself, I'm pretty confident that I'm supposed to enter God's, um, God's gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Lament doesn't feel like praise. Is it? The book of Psalms, in Hebrew, the word is tehillim, and it means praise songs. The whole book is called praise songs. In Greek, the word is psalmoi, which is how we get psalm, and the whole book means songs of praise. The whole book of Psalms, even the ones that don't feel like what we would call praise, are in some, some essence praise. This is a quote from Mark Vrogop. Uh, Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It is not only how Christians grieve, it's the way Christians praise through their sorrows. Lament is a pathway to praise when life gets hard. So there are times that normal praise maybe just doesn't make sense because things are hard. There, are, there is a response to that. There is praise, even in that moment. 
And if you maybe remember from one of my last sermons, uh, Carmen Imes, again, just super, no, I, love, I love the way she writes. I think that one of the misconceptions about lament that Christians have is that if I bring my sorrow to God, then it is a sign of lack of faith in him. That I don't trust that he is actually sovereign and that he's working all things out for his glory. But I think the reverse is actually true. When we bring our full selves to God and we bring the hard stuff and lament in his presence, we are affirming that we believe that he exists and we believe that he is the only one who can actually make things right. It is only him that we can trust. So this brings me to one of the reasons that I feel like lament has captured me right now is that God wants all of you. And this is one of the reasons I love Leviticus, right? They both start with L. So therefore, that's why I like them. No. Uh, just in the same way, Leviticus invites us to see the fact that our very theology can be lived out in a, in a tangible and active way. Lament shows us that there is no part of who we are and what we are experiencing that God wants to hide away from him. He wants us to bring our whole selves. To come to him where we are in the pain and the hurt, wherever that is. <clears throat> Quote from Tim Mackey. The Psalms don't deny, don't stuff or deny our emotions in our journey of following Christ. But at the same time, they don't show us a prayer that is overtaken or driven by emotion. They take a middle way of praying through our emotions. It is intentional, thoughtful, reflective, and discovering the sources of what we are feeling and remind ourselves of God's character and who we are, pouring it all out before God. It's hard sometimes to want to come with all of what we're experiencing. We want to sort of pack certain parts away, not open up. But if, the relate, if, if as we've been hearing through all these sermons, is that God wants a relationship with us, he's not asking us to hide away. He's asking us to open up, to hear all of us, to be fully, fully, fully known. And just in case this feels maybe a little bit too, well, this is very modern type of thing, we'll um, read a quote from Athanasius way back in the third century AD. From the Psalms, those who, do, who want to do so can learn the emotions and dispositions of the soul, finding in them also the therapy and correction suited for each emotion. If the point and needs to be made more forcefully, let us say that the entire Holy Scriptures is a teacher of virtues and the truths of faith, while the book of Psalms possesses somehow the perfect image for the soul's course of life. So I'll say this a couple different times. Read and pray the Psalms, all of them. There's no part of them that we're supposed to be setting to the side. If it doesn't fit for you, then pray it for somebody else. Another quote from Carmen Imes. If we don't pray the Psalms, then we start to think that God wants from us is to be cheerful all the time, no matter the circumstances then we don't have the space for other people's lament and for their struggles. 
So don't just pray the Psalms for the sake of our own, your own spiritual life. Pray it for others. The Psalms enlarge our ability to walk with others through tough stuff. I worked um, for four and a half years on a suicide hotline, volunteered, and boy, I learned a lot <laughs> in that time. And I saw a lot of different times where there gets to be this point where we can end up, we, certain types of, of, of things can happen. One is we can get so much stuck into complaining that that's all we end up being. We just, we're, we're one living complaint. Or vice versa, we end up doing the opposite, which is we're just supposed to be cheerful all the time and we stuff it down, anything that's not fitting in that. And at some point, both of those bubble up and cause problems. The laments are a way through that. The deal with it, don't stuff it, don't hide it, but work through it. Quote from Kathleen O'Connor, Prayers of lament name what is wrong, what is out of order in God's world, and what keeps human beings from thriving in all their creative potential. Simple acts of lament expose these conditions. It names them. It opens them up to grief and anger and makes them visible for remedy. In its complaint and anger and grief, lamentation protests conditions that prevent human thriving, and this resistance may finally prepare the way for divine healing which is what we're, you know, we're talking about here, right? We're opening ourselves up because we trust that God can bring us through all of those situations. We have confidence that in our relationship with him, we have confidence in who he is, his very character, and how he's acted in the past. And in the same way, he can bring us through those situations. But we have to be honest with him. We have to open up. You can think of this a little bit like Hagar when she's sent into the wilderness Boy, life has been rough on her. She has been mistreated. And yet, God meets her there. In Psalm 16, or Genesis 16, 13a, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God who sees me. He sees you, where you are, whatever the thing is through. Now, I apologize here. Um, Due to length, I actually chopped a section, so your sermon notes are wrong. Sorry. I did that last night. You know, this is what happens. You start looking at things and going, no, it's too long. So um, there's going to be a section. Just ignore it. If you want to like, look at the verses, great. You can talk to me afterwards. Great, too. So the cross as lament. If we just step back and look at the things that happen as we go to the cross, Jesus is betrayed by his friends. He's falsely accused. In one essence, we see a triumph of his enemies. And on, but at the same point, Jesus has this ongoing trust that God will vindicate him. And these all start to sound very, very familiar to us. These are what the laments are about. There is this betrayal or falsely accused, whatever those things are, we see that. We see this triumph that looks like it's happening, but we have trust that at the end of the day, God will vindicate us. And so when we look at the cross, we see that in the truly like lived out form and the confidence that we all have that whether in this life or in the new creation, we will be fully vindicated. 
Jesus was, and so that's our confidence. We can always anchor ourselves to that fact. So, you know, to think though more about lament, just to even notice this, uh, Matthew 27, 46, about the, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you've been paying attention up to this point, here's where the quiz starts. Psalm 22 is what we've been quoting a lot, right? And that's what Jesus is quoting here. And we start to see all of these similarities between what Jesus has been going through and then this call to be, you know, to God saying, what, what's going on? How is this happening? Why is this happening? And so we can notice the similarities and go, oh, wow, this is such an amazing prophetic, um, you know, psalm. It's not a prophetic psalm. That's not what his intent was. It was a real situation somebody was working through. And in the same way, Jesus is also experiencing this situation. Rebecca, another quote from Rebecca Eklund. The prayer of lament calls upon God not fundamentally to change, but to be steadfast, to be true to God's own promises, to protect, heal, rescue, and redeem. Christ's prayer of lament indicates that now God is implicated on both sides of the lament as the one who cries out and the one who hears, the one who requests deliverance and the one who delivers, the one who paradoxically mourns hiddenness at the very moment of God's greatest identification with suffering humanity. Now, if you're like me, the Trinity always hurts my head. So here we are. Jesus is fully human. And so as fully human, he is intimately now related with what lament is and is, is anchoring himself in the same way that the, the psalmists have. And yet at the same point, he is somehow fully God and therefore he is God and God forsaken on the cross. That hurts. But that, there's something about this where he is, he is both the one who is the one he can trust and long to and the one who is experiencing the very thing that he's crying out about. And so because of that, we can have confidence because he has been on both sides of the equation. He's lived through it. Another quote from Rebecca Eklund. Lament typically arises from a situation of powerlessness and appeals for change to the one who has the power to help. What happens then when the king laments? The one who ought to have himself have to have power, although lament is sometimes viewed as a passive practice, I suggest that Jesus is kingly lament reveals the true nature of God's power in direct opposition to worldly power, and that lament is thus a genuinely powerful and subversive practice of hope in an unjust world. Because as we look at what Jesus does, he turns our kingdoms upside down and says, this is what the kingdom looks like. And so in the same way, he conquers through death. He now invites us lament not just as of a passive thing of saying, crying out to God, but somehow, somehow in the same way that the king laments, we are to lament the things that are broken, the things that aren't right, and that we have confidence through that, that that in some way isn't just a hope or a wish or a dream. It is something so much more powerful than that. Like I said, I love Rebecca Eklund's quote, so I'm going to read another one. 
God's apparent silence in the face of tremendous suffering can be deafening. How can one worship a God who hides at a time when God is needed? The very God identified in Jesus' lament from the cross? Yet God is revealed in both cross and resurrection. The cry from the cross and the hope of resurrection shape each other. Lament may be a good Friday prayer, but it makes no sense without Easter. In cross and resurrection, in lament and vindication, God is both with us us and for us. And so as Lydia was even pointing out to us earlier, there there is, in the same way we look for the cross, we look beyond the cross because we have confidence that the whole creation will be set right. And so as we lament, we're not lamenting just stopping there. We're looking forward and looking to where things are going. And so that is why we cry out, because we recognize that what we're experiencing and what we know to be true of where we're headed are not the same thing. Quote from uh, Carmen Imes, lament is not a destination, but a way station. So dense. We are not to stop at lament. Lament is a thing we're called to do, but doesn't mean that that's where we stop. We are anchored in the final truth that all will be set right, that all those who trust in God will be vindicated. Another quote from Rebecca Eklund, without patient endurance, lament risks losing its final stanza of praise and hope, and thus risks lapping into despair. Without lament, patient endurance risks becoming passive or fails to speak truthfully about the nature of suffering in the present age. And this one's a really easy one, I think, for us to fall into. We can pull back from suffering and say, that's not something we want to deal with. Or vice versa, we can embrace it and say, ah, suffering, that's a, that's a great thing, and you know, we were called to do it. If we look at how Jesus responds, he both suffers and he laments. He doesn't do one and not the other. He does both as he goes through in the same way. If we're going through a situation that is clearly not what we know the character of God is, that doesn't mean we say, well, if it's God's will, I'll just just chill out here. We can both be confident that he is going to work through that situation and not passively just sit there. Lament is okay. It is what we are called to do when things are not right. If they're broken and we look around at the world and the way it's not functioning right in our lives or in others, lament is what we're called to do. So, Romans 8. I think mine's backwards again in your notes. I apologize. This is what happens when I send my notes in on Thursday and not on Saturday. I've got a lot of time to change my mind. Or forgot to change my mind. Somebody, it's happening. It's all working there. So, Psalm 30, or Psalm, uh, Romans 8, starting at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors, though through him who, who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we keep being reminded that we are not going to be separated from Christ and that nothing can separate us from him. And yet in the very section in the middle of this whole, that whole chunk, there's a statement, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, which happens to be Psalm 44. And I'll just read you a couple quotes again from this one. Psalm 44 starts, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you have performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. And it goes on reminding themselves of God's faithfulness. And yet, verse 9 says, but you have rejected and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. And so it goes on and it starts to list all of these things that have happened, all these negative things that happen. And you get to 17 and it says, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. So here we are. There's this tension between we know what God is, here's what we're experiencing, and we've been faithful and yet we're still experiencing this stuff. Do you start to see how Romans 8 starts to fit here? And all of a sudden, so Paul puts in here, you have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. So he puts right here in the middle, Psalm 44, in the middle of this confidence of who God is. That even as we're experiencing the situations in the same way that Christ laments, when we're experiencing those things that are wrong in this world, that are broken, that doesn't mean we just passively sit back and just wait. We lean in and remind God of his character, of who we know he is, and hang on to that. And so then Romans 8, 18 to 26, starts to come into a little bit more clarity with this. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the glory, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who rejected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope. No, hope is not, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope, for what do we not see? We wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And there are going to be times where you look at the world and you don't even have the words to say for how broken it is. And the Spirit is there to groan with us, to lament for what is not right, to not settle for just the way things have always been, looking to the future, knowing the confidence that he will redeem 
all of creation. A quote from David Starling. Lament for Paul, even protesting lament, retains its validity as an authentic expression of Christian faith. It is not faith's last word on suffering, but it is still a valid word to be spoken by God's people in response to sufferings that are unexplained, at least from a human standpoint, inexplicably. Christians are to voice that which creation is unable to articulate. And when that fails, know that the Spirit is able to articulate for us that which we can say neither for ourselves nor for a groaning creation. Some, some things we could lament over as we look around the world. Loss of life from the pandemic. Poor treatment of God's good creation. There's way too much sort of settling for abuse of that as if it's an okay thing. Mass shootings. We just had one just recently. Persecution of people groups all over the world. Christian and non-Christian. Lack of protection for vulnerable groups in our society. Unborn, as we prayed for for in the abortion. Immigrants, the poor, even racial injustice, as controversial as that one is right now. The drug pandemic that we're experiencing in our very local area, as most of these are. One final quote from Rebecca. In the New Testament, lament is a practice for the now. It is a practice that makes sense not only because there is a God who hears and who redeems, but also because there is a not yet. Likewise, Jesus laments as human fully immersed in a painful now, but in his own person he embodies the not yet. He himself is the promise that the one whom we pray knows our longing for that not yet and will indeed will surely bring that not yet into being. In the meantime, blessed are those who mourn. So if you're like me, this isn't something that's super common for you or familiar. So what I'm going to do now is we're actually going to uh, listen to a song. Uh, Can you give me one more slide, Andrew? Yeah. So there's a a band called Poor Bishop Hooper. Weird name, I know. Um, They are singing every single psalm written. They're currently in the hundreds. Um, and they're just releasing like one every couple weeks. So we're going to listen to one of their songs on lament. And then afterwards, there's going to be, at the very end of all these slides, there's a, um, a slide that basically breaks down a couple of the lament psalms into different categories. And what I invite you to do when the song is over is to open up your Bible and read one of those psalms of lament and either for yourself or someone else pray it so that lament starts to become something that you start to be familiar with and not just something we avoid.